Kia ora koutou katoa, everyone, and welcome to the Weekly Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey, and co-host Peter Bale is... Bernard, how are you? Back. Where are you today? Tell us what. Tell us where you are. Well, I'm actually in your uh, humble uh, but fantastic abode in Auckland, um, in separate rooms. Yeah, I thought I, I thought I heard you coming, and I can just about hear you, you know, barking orders from uh, <laughs> from what I think of as Bernard's room. Yeah, because we haven't yet worked out how to have two people on Zoom in the same room at the same time without um, all sorts of nasty squealing and delays. So, yeah. um, so this is good. So it's wonderful to, to see you all joining there uh, for the weekly hoon. It's been quite a week of uh, rain, rain and more rain, but plenty of news around the place. And we've got a couple of great guests coming on today at 515 uh, we've got Ref Menji, who is the leader of the Opportunities Party, TOP, who um, TOP have been on the rise in the polls in the last uh, month or two, and the polls are moving. So we'll have a chance to talk about uh, that with Ref. And Does it make Ref a, a top bloke? A top bloke? Well, definitely he's the top, top mm. bloke. Uh, and um, uh, they're rising in the polls, and we'll have a, a chat about that, but also the Reserve Bank. Um, given uh, TOPS views on monetary policy and uh, a whole bunch of things. And then at 5.30, we will have our old friend of the show, uh, Professor Robert Patman, join us to talk us about the big things happening this week in geopolitics. Um, and uh, I, we thought this week, Peter, we'd start off domestically. Yeah. With yeah. Uh, what's what's happening here. Um, yeah, Bernard, I was really struck by this Reserve Bank stuff because I'm you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Reserve Bank independence. And it seems to me as though a bunch of New Zealand politicians are playing with fire by calling into question the independence of this chap, Adrian. Although it was also quite funny to watch him because um, he does look a bit of a pugilist, as does Ian Foster. And it all went down on the same sort of coincidentally, are you going to resign just as Ian Foster didn't have to resign or, was, or wasn't pushed? Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. Actually, in the press conference, and I was there, uh, the question about... Which one? Were you in the rugby one or the, or the Reserve Bank one? The Reserve Bank one. Although ah. that, I'm not sure they were happening in the same place. But if the New Zealand rugby headquarters are not that far from Parliament, actually. Mm. So mm. It could, you could have run from one to the next. But everyone was aware by the three o'clock start of the press conference that Ian Foster had perhaps surprisingly kept his job. And... Uh, it was actually referred to in the question to Adrian Orr about whether he would want a second term as mm. Reserve Bank Governor. And you're right. And we're in a really unusual position where uh, the Reserve Bank Governor's job and his reappointment has become a hot political topic, which I don't think we've ever been in before. Uh, there was a lot of um, grumpiness at the time in the early 90s about Don Brash, but it never really got political. Mm. And by the time he decided to leave and become or want to become the leader of the National Party, he'd sort of finished with the job and it was too late for people to And he was very it. competent, wasn't he, as, a, as Reserve Bank Governor? Yes, uh, certainly he can claim credit with the Reserve Bank for uh, crunching the economy mm -hmm. and getting inflation down. But if you were one of those people who were unemployed, as I was in 1991 when he was crunching the economy with high interest rates, a lot of people weren't thrilled. And I think... It actually cost him in the end. I mean, he went on to become the Labour, the National Party leader mm -hmm. and um, almost won the 2005 election. And there wasn't much talk about his role as Reserve Bank Governor no, at the time. But no. I, I know a lot of people still harboured some grumpiness about how hard he slammed the economy to get inflation down. Well, it's all very topical again because now the Reserve Bank Governor has been blamed with inflation at 7.3% for not meeting his inflation mandate. Yeah, but when, when it's, it's impossible to meet that inflation mandate at the moment, Bernard, isn't it? I mean, you see you've got 10.1% in the UK. I mean, these are all you know, largely internal and, and, and uh, um, imported factors. You've still got extremely tight employment in New Zealand. Seems to me Adrian, Adrian was getting a bit of an unfair kicking. And, and also that, um, you know, some of these politicians who call into question his independence really ought to sort of, think a little bit more carefully about what they're asking for. Yeah, but there, there is a legitimate um, argument to, to have. And to be fair to the politicians, um, who you could... Who you steady could, on. <laughs> steady on. To be fair to the politicians, who, you're right, um, could uh, use um, Reserve Bank bashing as a way to curry favour with people who are unhappy with inflation. The, the opposition are actually following on from some very heavy-hitting 
uh, critiques from those people who have been at the Reserve Bank. So we've mm. had Graham yeah. Wheeler, the previous Reserve Bank governor. We've had uh, Arthur Grimes, who is the former Reserve Bank chair, and in fact, uh, one of the major architects of the Reserve Bank's inflation targeting regime. Uh, we've had um, also uh, criticism from John McDermott, the previous chief economist. So there, there is a legitimate argument to be had about whether the Reserve Bank, um, you're right, they did what every other central bank did. Uh, and you could argue um, that uh, the Reserve Bank could have decided not to follow every other central bank, and mm. that would have been a good thing. Uh, but still, there would have been inflation, because remember, uh, central banks around the world have uh, printed $9 trillion, and eventually it caught fire, and it yep. caught fire in the last year and a and, half. And, and better, just what is it that these, uh, is, is what these former uh, mandarins at the Reserve Bank are, are saying? Are they all saying the same thing, that they moved too too fast, too slow, or that they joined the bandwagon? What, what is that, is that, what's the, what's, what brings them together? What's the, what's the essence of their criticism, or is it a set of criticisms? Yeah, uh, there's a, a range of uh, critiques, but the ascent, the headlines are um, Arthur Grimes has called the Reserve Bank incompetent, which is a pretty strong thing to mm -hmm. say. And I, I suspect if Arthur bumped into uh, Adrian Orr at a, at a cocktail function, there might be some cocktails being thrown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> thrown. Uh, that has hurt um, uh, the Reserve Bank. Uh, others have described the Reserve Bank as being profligate and reckless in the way that it printed $55 billion, removed the LBR restrictions, and is still giving cheap loans to the banks. Mm. And uh, if the Reserve Bank of New Zealand had not followed the money printing habits of the other central banks and had not released the shackles by taking the LVRs off, maybe we wouldn't have the 7.3% inflation, it might be 3 or 4%. Because when you look at the inflation numbers, you can see that about just about over half of the inflation is generated domestically. Now, you're right. A good chunk of that is due to what's happening in the labor market. Yes, and, and particularly the energy Bank. prices. Yeah. yeah, and the Reserve Bank can't do much about that. But remember, uh, we had an extraordinary explosion of lending into the housing market, which pushed up the construction costs and, and uh, the costs of... Um, buying a new house, but also has con contributed to the rise in rents. Mm. And um, one thing that the official criti critics, as well as the opposition, have not focused on is the way that the money printing, the LVR removals, have effectively destroyed the hopes of an entire generation of first home buyers that they would be able to get into a first home under their own steam. Um, this week, the Reserve Bank forecast a 20% fall in house prices uh, from peak to trough, peak being uh, the end of last year to a trough, which mm -hmm. they expect at the end of this year. Now, that sounds like a lot, but remember, house prices rose 45% between the beginning yeah. of 2020 and the end of 2021. So for those people who felt like they might have just been able to get into the market just before COVID, now they're out for many, many years. And, and but 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 they also forecast a you know twenty percent fall. But you know you you mean it that the the fall isn't going to allow these people to come no, back in again because everything's tightened up so much. Exactly, and also the banks are being tougher and um, giving out loans. Mm -hmm. So for those people who thought in twenty twenty they might have had a chance, they've had to save another fifty hundred thousand dollars for their deposit. They're now having to pay higher interest rates and. Um, also, you know, a lot of these houses are still 20, 30% higher than they were two years ago. Yeah. The housing market shouldn't see 30% rise in house prices in two years, no matter how how good it is. The houses are not 30% better. This is just so, so just going back to Adrian Orr then, what do you think he's got wrong? Is it is it forecasting here? Is it reluctance to act quickly enough? Is it too timid after the after the COVID crisis? Because again, you know, there's a lot of second guessing going on. Um you know, with people people in the middle of in the middle of the COVID crisis, which was you know a difficult thing for both the government and the Reserve Bank to manage. Yeah, I mean, I, um, Grant Robertson has accused Christopher Luxon of being kept in hindsight, <laughs> which is one way to describe it. Yeah, and, which is, you which know, is we, a Boris Boris Johnson remark used against it? Keir Starmer. Yep. All right. Good. Oh well, plagiarism is alive and well in politics. Mm. Uh, this is, um, you know, that's a fair critique of uh, Christopher Luxon and people like me and others who've 
who've said they should have done this and they should have done that. Mm. But the Reserve Bank should get some credit for actually moving before everyone else. They mm. stopped the money printing in July 2021, when in fact the Fed was still printing at the beginning of this year. And the European Central Bank has only just finished. The Bank of Japan is still printing like mad right now. Yeah. And well, I, I noticed Bernard yesterday that what one of the great Dr. Doom, the original Dr. Doom in the United States, was talking about the Fed not 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 going far enough, fast enough. That it, that it wasn't surprising the market. That the only the only is it something like the, the the only way to surprise the market is to whack it in the face with something it's not <laughs> expecting. Yeah, and there's a very good piece in the Wall Street Journal today which goes into this very mm. issue of whether financial markets are being too complacent and expecting the Fed to ease off. And, uh, you know, we've had a 17% bounce in stock prices mm. in the last six weeks. And that is um, at odds with what we're seeing with inflation and with what the Fed are actually saying. But everyone's assuming the Fed's going to ease off uh, later on this year. And I think the issue of whether or not central banks deserve to remain independent is a, is a live one. You've got to remember that in the last 15 years, central banks around the world, uh, and we could claim to be... Um, better and separate mm -hmm. up until the beginning of last year. But central banks around the world have effectively used the power of um, being able to print money mm -hmm. to rescue banks and to keep uh, asset owners whole and to essentially backstop the market whenever it looked like it was falling. And those people who happen to own assets at the beginning of the last 15 years, and certainly at the beginning of COVID, are now rich, rich, rich because of Decisions made by an independent but powerful public servant mm. being the central bank governors. And the reason they were given independence is that they weren't going to be uh, tempted to politically use those powerful tools particularly to make... Labor, particularly under Labour governments, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, not use those powerful tools to make uh, one group of people better off at the expense mm. of others. Mm. Well, that's exactly what they did. Uh, during uh, the global financial crisis. And since then, the ability to print money, and we're talking $25 trillion over the last 15 years, was used to pump up the value of assets. That's and a very interesting point, but, and, and Kathleen Lauderdale pulls it up in the, in the, in the chats as well. Uh, and, and Sonia also makes the point about the, um, the, the loans to banks. Do you think that there is a serious risk to um, Bank, of England, Bank of New Zealand Reserve Bank of New Zealand independence? Uh, not at the moment, because both the opposition and the government profess to um, want to preserve um, the Reserve Bank mm. independence. And Christopher Luxon has been a reasonably cautious at not um, attacking or personally. Um, mm. Simon Bridges wasn't quite so cautious before he left. And just the mere fact of saying that you want a full independent review and you've talked about, you know, rivers of cash being produced by... The, by the um, Reserve Bank uh, has made a lot of people feel uncomfortable. And just this week, Nicola Willis came out and attacked the, the Reserve yeah, Bank's hiring of a bunch of um, public relations people, which uh, will also make the Reserve Bank feel uncomfortable. And the guts of it is that the Reserve Bank governor, who normally would be reappointed without too much drama if nothing had gone wrong, uh, the opposition and particularly ACT, are you know, very opposed to his mm. reappointment. Mm. And he could be reappointed in March. You could have a new government in November, and it's a five-year term. So what you'd effectively see is a potential clash between the most powerful um, politician in terms of the prime minister and certainly yeah. the finance minister clashing with their own reserve bank governor. In a very fundamental. Well, didn't way. we get? Didn't wasn't there a letter from Grant Robertson that was that was seen to be pushing them too far? You know, back back uh, sometime toward the end of the last lockdown. Yeah, towards wasn't, the wasn't end. There of... a, wasn't there a bit of a sort of shot yeah. fired by by Grant across? Yeah, I, uh, my my view is that that was performative from both sides, in that they wanted to be seen to be pushing to stop the Reserve Bank from. Uh, mm. printing money to push up house prices and the Reserve Bank pushed back to show that it was independent. Mm. My understanding is that uh, Grant Robertson and Adrian Orr are still on good terms and that um, uh, that they that Grant Robertson wants to reappoint Adrian Orr and that Adrian Orr wants the job. And so we all asked that question this week, you know, Ian Foster's got his job uh, safe until the World Cup. Will you have your job safe to the yeah. World Cup? 
And we asked the question, do you want the job? We weren't asking, are you going to be reappointed or what is the board saying? We wanted to know what you wanted. Mm. Do you want the job? And he said, I'm not going to talk about it. And we we at the press conference tried two or three different yeah. times. And to you find said, but out that's, that's all we want to know about. We don't want to care about interest yeah. rates. We just want to know about you. Now, <laughs> tell me, Bernard, where did this word front coming? You know, he fronted the press conference. Is, oh. it, is it an all black thing? Uh, I think it's like shirt fronting. Maybe it's yeah. like, you know, yeah. come here and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Um, it is a new, I don't know if it's you know, a new The prime thing. minister fronted this, the, you know, he fronted it. Yeah, yeah. Front front footed. Maybe conference. it's a cricketing term. Ah, it could be, yeah. Uh, but all terms in New Zealand related to the All Blacks, not cricket. Cricket or rugby, you know, that, yeah. that, that yeah. could be that could be it. Now, let's just see if Raf has joined us here. Raf should be in there, and, I, and I'm going to see if... Um, yes, he is. Uh, yeah, he's at the top, in fact. He's, uh, uh, he's above Cool, Adrian cool, Moore. cool. Good, good, good. Promote to panel, panelists. So Excellent. We're, we're, we'll have Raf with us in a moment uh, through the interwebs uh, joining us. Um, which will be good to see. Hi, Raf. How are you? Hello, Raf. I think we're getting his we're getting uh, his I, uh, I icon. Think... Oh, there he is. There's ah, the real Raf. How, how are you going? Good. Oh, fantastic to see you, Raf. It's re really good to have you on. It's um, about bloody time, actually. Too. It is. I mean, look, I, I have to say, a lot of people keep asking, "When are you going to be on the Who?" And it's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, well, That's I recall that you were actually one of our first guests, you know, before we became international media stars. I think we talked during COVID actually a few times. We did. Uh, we did from when Bernard and I were just amateurs, not not doing it with the sort of precision and highly produced special effects that we do it with now. <laughs> That's right. And our audience, <laughs> our audience has gone from, you know, at least three to at least 300. You know, yeah. I mean, it's actually, no, it's it's quite a bit more than that. Um, thousands of people are downloading the podcast afterwards, which is great. And yeah. and I also want to um, say thank you. And my apologies, Ref. We had a great interview put onto um uh onto a, a digital a digital file at some point and I just never got a chance to put it up. So I really appreciate you answering my call to say come you know, on to the home. It's quite interesting to to actually do another one but actually compare it to what we talked about. Oh yeah what's changed? I think it was literally a few days before the Ukraine war broke mm -hmm. out. And it was a yes. very busy week and I just thought oh Bernard's got too busy and then you know kind of the moment passed and you move on. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what I actually said. Yeah. So what did you think of this week's um, action around the Reserve Bank, the rate hike, the um, potential for higher interest rates, but, you know, more importantly, this debate about Reserve Bank independence? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've been through the period of essentially, you know, Reserve Banks becoming independent in the way we, we know, certainly, you know, when it happened in the UK. Uh, I remember it very well because I was short sterling at the time and got absolutely hammered um as did a lot of people kind of caught people by surprise um and, and we saw sterling rise a lot because people immediately assumed rates would be tighter because central banks were yeah. looking after them what we've seen over the last 20 years is that is completely not the case in fact if we just start with greenspan and the tech wreck of 2000 2001 um obviously post 9 11 as well i mean that's where the greenspan put came from and in the GFC when you know the financial system globally nearly melted down you know the internal plumbing almost got blocked um, and the US stepped in uh, well the Congress stepped in but the Fed stepped in and yeah it was like money for everyone and rates as low as you like so basically people are always going to be bailed out the financial system knows it it's too big to fail that's actually still an amazing book um, along with the Michael Lewis, the big short, too big mm. to actually looks at what happened inside the Treasury, inside the Fed. And so I would actually argue um, central bankers have unfortunately come a cropper because the only tool they use is the hammer of interest. Yeah. Yeah. Interest rates are fantastic if you're managing money because it's the most important input. And it was quite nice yesterday to see the Treasury and Reserve Bank and whoever else was part of that group that Dominic Stevens was leading, looking at house prices and suddenly going, oh, you know, we've shed some light on the impact of interest rates on house prices and land supply. It's like, that's not shedding light. We've all been talking about that for years. And, you know, yeah. shout out to Eric Crampton. He's been talking about it for years as well. So we've all been saying some people have focused on land supply. Some people have focused on interest rates. Some people have focused on tax setting. And now they produce this report saying, oh, it's all those, you know, those three things. And it's like, well, well done. Got there in the end. Um, 
But uh, yes, I think Reserve Bank independence, you know, central bank independence, it's, it's about clarity. That's the key thing. So I, I wouldn't have a problem with the way the Reserve Bank acted other than I think, you know, we have to say that the Reserve Bank governor made it a lot about himself. And I think that was unhelpful. Mm. And I think- why, why is that? Why is that, do you think, Brad? I, <laughs> well, I mean, we all know Adrian probably, and, um, you know, he's, he's a passionate guy. And I think he just got a little bit carried away. And I think that's when you're bored. Do you, do you mean about personalizing it yourself? But you mean about making him the center of the story? Kind of. yourself the center of the story. And the whole kind of no regrets, no regrets, no regrets. Now it's, oh, we've got a few regrets. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's not, you know, the, the, the central banker needs to be reliable and dull. And, and Adrian's been around a long time. I mean, mm. I, I got a letter out of the day from 06, 2006, that I'd written to him and pretty much everyone else saying secondary uh, finance company sector was about to go belly up. I think provincial finance. Which just it did. Yeah. Came back to me, gave me the usual, oh no, we think they're very well, you know, capitalized. We don't actually regulate them because back then they didn't, but we don't see too many problems to the system. Actually, the only person who replied um, correctly, as it were, was John Key, <laughs> who said, yeah, I think this is the first of many. So, you know, I guess it takes one to kind of... Yeah. And, and the thing and, is, and then Ralph, he went what's, on... What's the what's Top's position about... I'm sorry, but what's what's Top's position about Reserve Bank independence? And, and do you think there's any risk to it? I mean, it's quite interesting to see Nicola Willis criticising him. You know, Adrian always come, come in for quite a lot of very direct political criticism. Does, does that actually put the question of Reserve Bank independence um, in yeah, the question? I think it's kind of the wrong question. If, if your sole goal is price stability and you're, you're managing inflation, the price level mm. by interest rates and potentially other, and there are other tools that I'd like to see them to use, then actually you don't need a $100 million a year Reserve Bank to do that. Mm. I mean, the market actually will do it for you. It's very straightforward. Um, the, the role of the central bank in providing liquidity, central bank reserves, as we've seen, you know, that, that's a different matter. I think I'd like to see more understanding and more focus on the interaction between monetary and fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, whether that's talking about nominal GDP targets, which a lot of people don't like, or nominal income targets, or whatever, but a, a broader perspective. And I think this, this view of having Treasury and the Reserve Bank or a central bank as separate entities it's not going to work in the future. Things have got way too complex. So, so do you mean do, do they do they need to have their charter redrawn to to include it? Which is kind of what what Grant Robert. We were just talking before you came on about Grant Robertson's letter, which you know raised some questions about potential other targets that the Reserve Bank should be looking at. You, you were saying that 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 inflation the inflation measure is just way too blunt an instrument right now. No, I'm saying if that's all it is, then you don't you know you don't need to be spending 100 and whatever it is 28 million a year, which is their budget because Treasury can do a lot of that work. What I would like to see is a lot more of these people sitting around the table. So in a way, this housing report is good. And I have to say, I mean, Bernard, you watch this stuff all the time, but you know, I think Dominic Stevens at Treasury and Paul Conway at the Reserve Bank, bank economists come in, I'm starting to see a slight change. And it, I don't know if it's because of them, but certainly the language is changing. The stuff they're putting out has a very different tone to it. One thing, thing do you mean? Do you mean that they're not that, that they're prepared to engage with other with with people that they well, I, I think might not otherwise talk to? I think they're kind of talking about stuff which is is interrelated between Treasury and and the Reserve Bank. And I think in the past, and, and I've known people at Treasury who've just said, you know, Reserve Bank will not talk to us. I'm going, why not? That's ridiculous. Hmm. Um, and you know, this was an ongoing issue, and so you know. This independence thing is like a lot, a lot of things we, they're these shibboleths, you know, we hold them, you know, as really sort of important things. But when you actually look at well, what is actually coming out of it, it's actually not that exciting. And I think for a lot of politicians, they don't really understand this stuff. So, so all of them laying into Adrian, okay, fine. But why exactly? Um, what was your take on it? What would you have done differently? How would you structure it differently? Mm. So, yes, yeah, so in terms of monetary, monetary policy kind of works fine. OK, but I think the and of course, we haven't talked about the role of the Minister of Finance, mm. as far as I'm concerned, is the person in charge. You know, so, you know, Grant can't just sort of go, hey, nothing to do with me. Here's your indemnity, pay interest on reserves, eight billion dollars later. Um, and that's only because, you know, Michael Riddell has been <laughs> diligently kind of going on about that. 
But where's the Minister of Finance actually talking to us? I haven't seen one speech where he's really come in and said, look, this is kind of what happened. I asked the Reserve Bank to do this because they obviously would have talked about this, wrote them an indemnity. I understood what the risks were. But I think probably that's not the case. But there's no sense, <laughs> so, of, there's no sense of contrition or awareness that this has completely shocked, you know, those people who are looking to get into housing and has made some people incredibly wealthy through the process. I'm curious about um, that report this week uh, about housing. What would TOP do to try to um, unblock the you know the housing supply issue which is identified again in this paper is the the main reason why when the reserve bank threw money at the system the prices went up really high yeah but there i mean what's clear now is there are a lot of levers you can pull but what i'd like to see and what we never see from the government and again the minister of finance never talks about this show us all these levers and actually talk us through what you might do mm. i mean there's a kind of there's no transparency in the policy making around this stuff it's just you know, officials get called up. Can we have a policy tomorrow? Can we have a policy in a week? Can we have a policy in two weeks? And I mean, I know, because I hear that from officials all, all the time. Not the call, I need something. And policy making has become very reactive. So the interest deductibility for landlords, for example, where Treasury hadn't even done the numbers. Um, now, it's quite easy to work out the numbers on the back of an envelope in an hour when you looked at how much mortgage is there out there, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, but I think that the key, I guess, at the the key policy that we're proposing, which is slightly new, is land value tax. So that is definitely mm -hmm. going to be a shift. We've talked about it for years. Um, it was around in New Zealand from 1891 to 1991. And there is a great PhD dissertation out there on that subject uh, by mm -hmm. Dylan Hobbs. You can get it on the Google machine. Um, so land value tax, which is it's a much easier tax to collect. It captures the value that the essentially public investment mm -hmm. is creating. Um, around land values it's not houses going up it's land prices going up and that also comes into the whole supply issue um, as well so we'd look at we, we'd look so at just, just does it not look at the value the improved value of the property with the does it exclude the house no just the land interesting just yeah. the land. and 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 um and and all and all the residential land all the agricultural land and and also includes uh owner occupied dwellings yeah, it's basically what we're looking at at the moment to start off with is just residential land. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so we're excluding farmland, uh, conservation land, mining land for the moment. Um, but essentially what it does is it incentivizes development. That is mm -hmm. the key thing. So if you're sitting there with bare land, you now have to pay a bit more money on mm -hmm. that. Um, so that's pretty, yes, I think somebody just put up that, uh, thank you, the, uh, the PhD, which is very, very good read. That's great. And a great piece of work. And... Um, you know, in Australia, this is quite advanced. Recently, they just switched from stamp duty to offering, um, I think it was maybe first home buyers, um, the opportunity to pay land value tax. Mm -hmm. It's actually been around in Australia a lot more at the, at the state level. So we certainly look at that. One thing I'm quite keen on is re removing leverage from the ability to buy existing homes as an investment. So that's, you know, your residential investment stuff and people cannot take equity and then bundle it in to another oh, right. because that's really what the problem is uh, at that level so i think you, you mean that you mean that people use the equity that they've that they've built up to to do more yes to, exactly but isn't, isn't that capitalism isn't that just using their capital no no because they can go and borrow money what what i'm saying is actually we want to take the leverage out of mm. residential investments you can still invest in a in a residential home and rent it out but you've got to have the money you got to put down 100 percent. a bit like you do if you go call up your broker and say mm. i want to buy some shares Unless you're a kind of you know professional trader, they're going to say, "Well, give me the." Remind money. me, it, it is, is mortgage interest isn't deductible though, is it in that case, or is it if you're running an investment company? It probably is. Well, no, I, and, and see, this is another point. I actually would I would actually reverse that policy. Um, I think it actually was quite unfair mm. um, because I think this is a much better policy in terms of achieving what you want, trying to take some of the speculative gas. Now, if you, if you go into your Excel spreadsheet and you put in different leverage at 20%, 40%, 60%, the price that you can pay drops. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So essentially, so if you want to buy a million dollar home, which was you know, roughly average price, um, then you've got to put a million bucks down. Now, previously, that's been 200,000 mm. or 400,000. So if you say, yeah, if you've got a million bucks to buy this existing house, fine. Now, if you want to build a new house, that's a different story. 
And I think in a way last week, um, I think the government came out with um, the build to rent thing, didn't get a lot of coverage. And um, I think the, the 10 year tenancy thing that, I mean, that's a bit weird. Who's gonna offer 10 year yeah. or even want them. Um, but essentially professionalizing that market is good. Doesn't mean people can't buy property as an investment, mm. but they can't buy as many. That is mm. really key. So, Ref, just to um, finish up here, uh, I've been watching the polls over the last two or three months, and there has been some movement for top and also for Te Pāti Māori and, and an edging up um, and in one or two polls quite quite a bit. Uh, what's your assessment of, you know, how top is travelling and, and uh, you know, whether you're getting lift off? I think look, we're getting some good traction. Obviously, the polling is pretty tricky. We don't ask the polling questions, and you know, people may you know not know that we're around. Whereas if it was like, here's a list, vote for these parties, I think we'd probably see a slightly different result. But I'm reasonably happy. We're tracking in the in the right way. Um, the people who are coming to us, um, either as you know volunteers or potential candidates or just interested, are generally disillusioned. They're disillusioned with what's going on. And we can see, obviously, Labour support is down hugely from 2020. Greens is pretty steady. ACT is kind of steady. National is, is back up. But actually, none of the major parties are over 40%. And I'm, st I'm just getting the sense, and it's very difficult to predict what next year will be like, but I think there will be demand for a party in the centre that can work with either National or Labour. And we could mm -hmm. quite easily. Um, I've worked with National before, worked with Labour. Um, they're, they're different, they have different styles um, of working, but we can work with them. We're not planning to go into government with either of them. We're going to, you know, we're going to be in a, a crossbench position um, and try and make sure we've got good policy. Now, I think if you look at the way John Key approached it, he always liked to have some people on the other side. Back then it was a bit weird because it was like 58 plus one plus one plus one. Um, so essentially we, we would hope we would get, you know, between three and seven seats, depending if I win Ireland, um, which is where I will be standing. And that changes things as well. So I think we will be in the mix. And I think there will be the demand when people look at either a Labour Green government or a National Act government. And we've never actually had a proper Labour Green coalition government or a National Act government. So people might go, oh, actually, we don't know if we really want that. Uh, maybe we'll have a few other people uh, around the table. Do you sense any sort of frustration within um, you know, regular Green voters that um, they haven't actually managed to move the needle much on a bunch of policies. And maybe it's dawning that this um, hardwired will only ever go with Labour thing is removing any potential leverage that the Greens have and that some people who are Green voters may be thinking of going somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I guess the most common people coming to us are Labour and Green. Um, supporters, particularly Labour supporters who are not happy. And you could say, actually, if Labour had another party on the other side squeezing them, more would happen. So, you know, the fact that, you know, David Parker's going, oh, we're going to try and work out our tax principles. Well, as we know, Bernard, that's an absolute flop. <laughs> they know what their tax principles are. They're just not prepared to put them into practice. So I think you know, I, I mean, obviously for us, we work very happily with the Greens. You know, I think James actually has done a great job. I mean, getting that Zero Carbon Act through was pretty hard work. Um, the Climate Commission, uh, the Adaptation Plan. Yeah, I'd like to see more done. But actually, the Greens need more friends in Parliament as well. And I think actually, <laughs> it's, it's not a crazy idea, but there are some Blue Greens and National who are very supportive of this stuff too. And, and what's your view on um, Christopher Luxon? He's been there now six months, clearly a different character with different policies from Judith Collins. I mean, how if ACT uh, and National were to be in government, they would probably need someone else, Te Pāti Māori, or if uh, Top got over the line, uh, Top. Um, what's, what's your feeling about, um, you know, how aligned or uh, how easy it might be for a top um, to work with national? Look, I mean, you know, I mean, we're, a, you know, because people ask us, okay, you, you, you've come as this evidence-based party. Now that, that's fine. That's not going to get you all the way. So, you know, I would say we're a progressive liberal party, um, you know, focused on um, fairness, a fair tax system, opportunities for all there, I could definitely see us, yeah, working. And because I've worked with National, they're very straightforward to deal with. You can disagree openly, 
but they go about their business. They're not tribal. Labour's very tribal, and I found them often very difficult to deal with. Greens are pretty straightforward. Um, so I think it's possible. I think Christopher, um, I knew him at Air New Zealand. He was always a thoughtful guy. I think he's still actually finding his feet. I don't think he's come up yet with any, I'm not seeing any particular ideas out of national yet. I don't think they understand where we are in terms of the development cycle. I'm talking at a society mm -hmm. level. You know, we've done the 84 Big Bang, deregulation. We all went through that. Now what's next? What's, what's happening at the moment is democracy is under threat. We need to stand up for liberal democracy. Um, and that's a real challenge. And I think national are a bit stuck. You know, they lost a lot of their liberal caucus. And I think, you know, we can deliver some of that conversation. Uh, I mean, clearly the conservatives in the national party would probably not like. I was going to say, Ralph, what, what, is, is there, a, there was quite a good piece, uh, or, or at least a, a, a Hooten interview, uh, interview, sorry, Hooten review of Chris Finlayson's books, book. And his his argument, which I think Hooten agrees with, is that the national's been kind of hijacked by a not a non representative clique, uh, which includes some pretty conservative groups of people, as opposed to its members. Yeah, I think yeah. I mean, obviously they lost you know people like Amy, Nikki Kay. Um, yes, and I think I think he hasn't quite got his mojo. I mean, I saw a video he did just today or yesterday, which looked much better. And you could argue, actually, from a strategic point of view, that this is the year to make all your mistakes, try stuff out and, um, you know, see where you go. I wouldn't write him off. I mean, you know, it's a tough no. job. I mean, it's have you have you changed your we're talking about candidates and so on? Have you changed your interview process uh, after what we've seen with Uffendale, Uffendale? <laughs> and, well, and possibly even with um, with Gaurav Sharma? Yeah, I mean, that has been um, quite interesting. I think, you know, people have to remember governing is a challenging job and parliament is a weird place i mean if you read the debbie france report it's pretty grim and i still think you know and the head of parliamentary services is still there um i still think there's some issues to go on and yet labor as as any journo knows you know they run things pretty tightly prime minister's office controls uh the messaging i think they've lost their way and i think the challenge for the prime minister is whether she can regather herself so the What's their way in what respect in this case, Brad? Do, do you mean overall or, yeah, or as far as yeah. managing the caucus goes? In communicating a story. Mm -hmm. I think it probably happened with the Auckland lockdown where I think there was disagreement in Cabinet over which way to go. I don't mm -hmm. think they wanted to change the traffic light system, which was actually probably the right thing, just leave things as they are. And yeah, I think they've struggled and they've, they've, they've bit off way more than they can chew. The structural changes in the health system. I mean, even Rob Campbell came out yesterday and said, "Oh, this might be harder than we thought." Well, yeah. hello, hello, yeah, exactly. <laughs> three weeks. It, it so, is just I've done these things at local government level. It's a lot harder than you think, and there's a lot more unintended consequences. Mm. Yeah. What's What's Top's view on on three waters? Then um, National are going to repeal it if they get in. Um, where would you sit? Well, we'll have a better idea, and I think that's the thing. It's not about being pro or anti. We have essentially a 30-year opportunity around uh, 120 to 180 billion dollar investment program. Um, I was looking at an email actually today that I'd sent to Bill English in 2014, having attended the B20 conference in Sydney, and New Zealand sent a delegation. I went along, and I said to him, "I said, hey, Bill, um, here's my feedback. We need a 30-year infrastructure plan, and we need it at the public, and we need companies to be able to come and bid for stuff on 10 to 20-year programs." get the training in place, um, bid for really, really low prices um, through efficiencies. Now, we did this in Christchurch after the earthquakes. Mm. The people who were in Christchurch, the horizontal infrastructure program, SKIRT, uh, it was a joint council crown uh, project and an alliance contracting model. Really well, central design center. So I would actually do a souped up model of that. Crown Infrastructure Partners is already doing that. They've already funded like half a billion dollars worth of water upgrades. Much simpler way to do it. And there's a very, very clear reason. And that's you've got to do local government reform first before you do the three quarters. That's it. So it's a, it's a, it's a sequencing thing. Local government is the problem um, in that the structure of local and central government doesn't work. It's like um, central government is operating on iOS. So that's Apple software for people out there. <laughs> local, local government is Android, you know? And I think they've got too big. So we have to make a decision about local government. Let's sort that out. And we might end up with a 1840s provincial government structure. And then you might tuck the water stuff 
into those bodies. Mm. But it seems it seems to me though it seems to me though the fundamental issue is that both centre right and centre left in New Zealand have set themselves these limits of no more than thirty percent of GDP going into government taxes and government debt, and which effectively limits local government debt as well yeah. because of the way that local government um, borrows in New Zealand at the moment. That's also limited at 30% of GDP. Does there need to be, you know, a challenge or a conversation about that 30 30 mm -hmm. limit that to break the logjam? Yeah, I mean, so we 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 have a, a two-page paper, very simple. Um, you know, we'll publish it at some point. But yeah, we're not worried about the public debt level at all. Because what people don't understand is the rest of the economy acts as a constraint. So capacity, the output gap, as as um, economists would call it, that's the restraining number not the public debt number. So when people go, if you're not worried about public debt, well, oh my God, you know, will we have 100% of GDP? No, because you couldn't get there. You don't have enough people. You don't have enough resources to stop worrying about public debt. You know, let's actually do what we need to do. We've got huge amounts of infrastructure to build in this country for the coming challenge, which is climate change. And what we're seeing at the moment, it's going to get worse. And if we're not smart about this stuff, and if we don't look at our national adaptation plan, and say, right, we want 2 billion a year on that. And a lot of that will cross over with other bits of infrastructure, like three waters. Where do you put roads? Mm. Where do you put pipes? I mean, we're seeing up in Nelson, you know, roads disappearing because they're built in the wrong place mm. or whatever. So we have, I'm incredibly optimistic if we get our settings right. But public debt is not a problem. It really isn't. We need to just, so we will just say, forget it. We're not going to have a public debt target. I hope I can persuade uh, the Greens to adopt that as well, because actually that's the way to go. And um, what else do you think that there's room for discussion with on both national and Labour? Because at the moment, with the Prime Minister's position that there can never be a capital gains tax or a wealth tax on her watch, and one of the first things she would be asked if Top was uh, in a position to uh, be something of a kingmaker would be, what do you think of Top's <laughs> land value tax? Have you get, are you going to rule that out as well? So, I mean, how do you see the land value tax, which is one of those flagship policies you've got. How, how does it survive, you know, the, the fires of, you know, of the rule in, rule out game? I think, look, if you ask me, will I rule stuff in or out? I'd probably say, no, I'm not going to, you know, I don't know, or maybe yes. But I think that was a mistake from her. I think she panicked. Um, it's Labour policy forever. She should have just said, okay, we didn't get it through, but we'd still like to bring it on. And I think mm. we have to be prepared to stand up and say, this is what we're going to do. And not worry about, someone's going to have a crack at you. Someone's going to be all over you on Twitter. Someone's going to tell you you're stupid. That's just the nature of the thing. But if you're confident in your work that you've done and that you're trying to solve the problem, that's fine. I mean, I, I will you know, bet you any money, basically. There will be tax reform on the agenda at the next election. Labour will come to the party. And if the PM, well, the PM hasn't ruled out a land value tax, you know, yeah, land value tax may, may be an easy, might, go, might be an easier that, way to get that there. That sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I have to say, Raf, that, that that would last about thirty seconds before at least three TV uh, well, reporters PM, jumped up. PM needs to go, and somebody else yeah. needs to step up. I mean, and that's the reality. And we shouldn't expect that she should be PM forever. I mean, it's been. You can imagine how hard that job's been over the last five, six years. Mm. Like mm. she's done three terms. Um, you know, I mean, we, we need turnover, we need new ideas, we need new people coming through. I'm sure there are good people in Labour, you know, down the ranks, um, or they can get some good people. And we want good people in Parliament, and we want to be having these discussions. Absolutely. And we never do. I mean, when do you ever see, let's say that the finance spokespeople of the parties getting around and talking about stuff? They don't, they, they talk through press statements. And, you know, it's a one way conversation. Um, one of the other big things that's uh, bubbling up at the moment, from local government, but actually it's sort of directed by the central government, is the shift towards mode shift and this, you know, almost cultural, cultural war style clash between double cab ute drivers and cyclists, you know, uh, and we've seen Simeon Brown come out and call Labour and the Greens, you know, anti-car, it's a war against the car. Uh, you know, how, how, how does Top view this, uh, this issue of mode shift and for example Auckland Council agreed this week to reduce emissions by 65% by having a tenfold increase in cycling and a sevenfold increase in walking in seven years um, you know how, how, how does top play into this 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're great fans of public transport. You know, I went to school on the tube and the bus and, and the train and whatever, and used to take me an hour to get to school. I mean, that's quite normal. I quite like the idea. Now, imagine if you want to change people's attitude on the roads, if you said, actually, all kids have to walk or bike to school, mm. how would that change? It would change a lot because they'd all be on the roads at kind of, you know, eight to nine o'clock in the morning. Everyone would generally slow down. And I think we, you know, we need to encourage that. I think where we go wrong around the cycling um, is kind of persecuting car owners. You know, cars are still incredibly convenient, you know, things to get around in. And a lot of people will continue to use cars. I think in the, in the urban space, I think that's where the battle is. And, you know, where you have a small strip of shops and car parking outside. Yeah, people are used to that. They're used to getting in the car, going down to the dairy or the cafe or to get their hair done and what have you. And I think... One thing I used to say at council, again, trying to be Mr. Reasonable, was like, okay, if you're going to take away the car parks, put them somewhere else, put them in a street around the corner or something like that, you know? I, I, I sort of, I have a fairly neutral view around cycle lanes. I think if you do them well, they're really good. But I mean, I, I grew up cycling in London. We didn't have cycle lanes back then. You just kind of cycled around and you watched. Left to the young people today, Ref. Glad, glad to see you're still alive and, and here, Ref. It's yeah. fantastic. Uh, yeah. I, I tell you, it's probably, transport is probably the most complex issue. Mm. So I couldn't say, hey, I've got a really clear picture. What I, what I would say is that when you live in a you know, city where you can walk places, you don't need your car. So centre of Christchurch, fantastic. So when we look at, say, that those housing density rules, which I can tell you people in Ireland do not like, because mm. Christchurch actually already has density rules, but actually you build in, in the CBD. In Wellington, you build in the CBD. In Auckland, you build in the CBD. And, you don't, and most people won't drive. So actually the people who do need to drive to come in and do stuff, actually the overall traffic will be down. So I think it's about the 15-minute city. So it's more to me about mm. development, urban development, at the moment, we focus a lot on the cars instead of actually let's build stuff first. If you build stuff, build more, you know, property, allow commercial buildings to be converted to residential, mm -hmm. particularly in places like uh, Wellington and Auckland. There's huge amounts of space there. And I'm told it's reasonably straightforward. You know, I mean, the zoning, get rid of urban boundaries, just get rid of all the zoning rules completely. <laughs> Try it open. That's what I say. Yeah. And just finally, uh, Ref, um, we, we actually haven't been able to get uh, Robert Patman on today. He's, he's got another commitment. So it's been fantastic. You've been able to uh, be with us for a bit longer. But um, you've been around in local government circles for a while. We've got elections coming up in October. And one of the real concerns that's cropped up in the last couple of weeks is the number of candidates coming in from... Uh, unusual places with views that are um, less than clear unless they're extracted. <laughs> what do you think of the risk of, you know, a, a groundswell type um, council takeover yeah. um, at, at the election? Making the country ungovernable. Yeah, that was, that's their stated aim. Yeah, it, well, I think people have to respond to it. I mean, you know, democracy is only as good as the people taking part in it. So, you know, we cannot take the stuff for granted and we cannot also rely on someone serving this up on a plate. You've got to get out there and you've got to do the work. And if you're not engaged in your communities and you end up with some loonies, well, that's tough. You know, you'll learn the lesson next time. So what we saw, and this, 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 we think this started with Trump because Trump basically just, you know, tried to destroy the whole system, but it probably started with the Tea Party and it mm. started probably with Obama's election. And if you look at the Tea Party and the way the alt-right developed, you know, there was a very, very clear plan around that. Even the kind of project for a new century, the conservatives, you know, the war in Iraq. I mean, there's been a very strong drive in the States to basically deal to um, democracy at every level. And we're seeing the outcomes, Brexit, you know, to be honest, Brexit's a disaster for the UK. You want to know why food prices and inflation are going up yeah, in the UK? Yeah, it's because of Brexit. It's amazing. You know, because you had a complete dunderhead who was, you know, quite fun. You know, I mean, I, I went to a dinner with Boris Johnson years ago, and he's a fantastic speaker. And we've got to stop actually electing people just because they're like they're fun or they give good TV. Hmm. You know, so make politics boring again. <laughs> so it's it's a problem, but I think people just have to respond to it. You know, I don't think it's going to impact the big councils. It's probably the smaller ones. And I imagine the media will do their job and just say, hey, this person is X, Y, and Z. And if someone wants to vote for them, you know, good luck to them. But I think 
democracy every so often gets challenged and that's history. And sometimes I think the last 30 years has been, you know, kind of one-way traffic in some respect, that we think this is the end of history. Clearly, Ref, what do, you, what do you think the media's culpability or responsibility in that is, particularly in New Zealand? What, what's, the, what's the role of the media in contributing to this disquiet? Look, it's, I think, you know, if you look at the, obviously the work, you know, Bernard's doing, I think we're seeing a little bit too much clickbait um, attraction going on. Uh, but I mean, I, media are doing kind of still doing their jobs. I think the, there's been a loss of trust, which has come from commercial imperatives, overseas influences. Mm -hmm. I mean, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of uh, what is out there on the web, on the internet, what people are seeing, uh, the lack of, you know, we talk about lack of civic education. Yep, but is it any worse than it ever has been? I don't know. So I think we've got information overload. Uh, for me, it always comes back to the economic stuff. We've got, you know, an, ec an economic crisis, which has been going on at least since 2008, but was there previously. And people switch off. I know so many people, I mean, through various work I've done over the years, when you're working poor, when you kind of, you don't feel like you've got a stake in society, you don't give a toss. Why, why you know, and the, essentially the, the professional managerial elite who tend to occupy capital cities, occupy positions of power, you know, they give out a nice story and, and their life's all right. So they think everyone else is like that and they're not. And you get into a bubble and then you don't see what is happening elsewhere. And so when I see some of the, the reactions to, um, you know, policy or just the way people go on about, you know, the prime minister or it's just like, whoa, whoa things seem mm. a little bit mm. out of control. And I think the media, the way we can deal with that is actually is more debate, getting politicians to talk, having these types of conversations. You know, I mean, I think it's really powerful stuff. Excellent. So we, we are the solution to the problem. Excellent. Thanks very much, Rev. We're, no, no, this is, this is a we're good, going to be the solution that's, that's to your problem. Yeah. <laughs> Rev, thank you very much for being on. We really appreciate you staying on for a bit longer than um, uh, we said we'd, we'd have you on. Uh, unfortunately, Robert Patman just at the last minute couldn't make it. So it's been um, uh, a real pleasure to have you on. And we'd love to have you on again in the future, well before the election, and uh, see how things are, th things are going. Great That's to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Good Cheers. to see you. And we do have, do have a bit of time, um, Peter, to um, look at the international issues, which we normally would cover with, with Robert. But uh, in particular, the nuclear um, issue in Ukraine. Can you tell us? Yeah, about it looks what's to be coming to there? a head. This, this, uh, the, the Zaporizhia power station, which is occupied by the occupied by the Russian forces now, there is an agreement of sorts now for the for the International Atomic Energy Agency to send some inspectors into there. But um, the Ukrainian side is also warning of a Russian spectacle of the of the possibility of the Russians staging some kind of perhaps a false flag type operation there. And I think, you know, it's extreme. This is the largest nuclear power station in Europe. Um, the Ukrainians have already pointed out that the Russians are trying to, um, or working on a program to um, cut off the power lines that go into Ukraine and divert them to go back to Russia um, from Zaporizhia. <laughs> Which, which I'm sure is no mean feat. And of course, there are, as there was, if you recall, at the early parts of this war, when there were um, mm. uh, Russian troops in, um, in Chernobyl, you know, there are staff at these places who are being, not quite, well, effectively, they're being held hostage. And they're working extraordinary, extraordinary hours. They don't have the access to the materials mm. and, the, and the refreshed people that they need. So I think it's an extremely dangerous situation. Um, and we've all seen Chernobyl, that great um, series, yeah. which showed yeah. what happens when someone with the wrong level of experience and a bad work environment <laughs> pushes the wrong button. That's right. That's right. No, I think I, th I think it's extraordinarily dangerous. And I, I, I also think, I mean, so I was pleased to see that the International Atomic Energy Agency is theoretically going to have access to it. But I think we're also reaching some interesting points with the potential response from Putin. You know, these, these sabotage or... Um, partisan attacks in Crimea and today in Belgorod in the in the kind of northeast of um, of uh, Ukraine just just south of the uh, Belarusian border you know you're getting attacks really really deep into Russian held mm. territory and um, destroying very very significant uh, arms dumps and so on you have to wonder what the Russian reaction is going to be other than just shelling everything as they know as they normally do and yeah, it, it I mean, worries me to think what the reaction to some of that might be.
And for those interested in their military history, um, the, um, the awful things that went on behind the lines uh, where, as, the, as the Germans were retreating hmm. through Russia, the level of partisan activity and the reprisals that went on is just um, too frightening to con contemplate. Uh, this week in the bulletin um, email that you put out uh, via the spinoff, you had a really interesting interview with a guy called David Kilcullen. Yeah, he's a, really interesting, he's a really interesting bloke, Bernard. I mean, he's Australian, but we won't hold that against him. <laughs> but he's one of the things that he's he's kind of different from many of the political analysts is that he was a soldier. And so he understands the the military implications, not just sort of, you know, on a whiteboard or, or a, you know, a, a big box of sand in, a, in an office. Um, you know, he really knows what it means to put kinetic forces, as they call them, into, into action. I mean, he wrote the Petraeus, uh, famous Petraeus book on, um, on uh, um, or code on insurgencies and how to combat them. And I think one of the things that was interesting for me today, uh, talking to him yesterday, was um, particularly around Russia and China, is understanding the motivations of these, of these states. I mean, he, he isn't trying to normalize them or legitimize them, but he talks about uh, Russia's legitimate concerns and, and Russia's illegitimate concerns. The legitimate concerns uh, being the expansion of NATO. I happen to sort of more or less disagree with David on that, but you know he 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 thinks that that Russia has a legitimate concern about being surrounded by NATO. He uh, does believe that there is plenty of evidence that United States and and various others lied about. Um, or misled Russia, particularly or misled the Soviet Union and then Russia about the encroachment of, of NATO. And he also had a fabulous line from somebody else, but he, he used it with me. I didn't put it into the spin-off thing that the, 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 only, the only good Russian border is one with, with Russian soldiers on both sides. <laughs> and That's so, a great line. Yeah. And, and also, I was surprised in reading your piece and seeing that he, he thinks that the Russians are in a position to sort of grind everything to a halt and grind down grind it the, on yeah the, the I, I think that was interesting too we i think we there's the whole changing of the situation with HIMARS, the 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 uh, american multi-launch rocket system that the that the ukrainians have been deploying with with to to immense effect you know you've still got the russian army you haven't you know, putin hasn't had to go yet to the to the point of um of a national mobilization, you know, you, and they've got you know, a lot of accumulated artillery and shells to make a hell of a mess of, um, you know, large swathes of Ukraine. And so, yes, David's David's view was that uh, Russia was grinding it out and that there won't be a kind of flip. I, I also think that all they have to do is grind it out to Christmas. Yeah, it's interesting when you see the pressure that's going on in Europe around electricity costs mm. just in the last week. There's been a couple of smelter closures in Europe because um, the cost of electricity has quintupled in the last year. The pressure in that conservative leadership campaign around the issue of energy costs, the idea that yep. 48 million Brits just won't be able to afford their fuel and uh, gas and uh, electricity mm -hmm. bills this this year is just stunning. No, and I and think I think some of these issues, Bernard, are going to prove really difficult to manage from a public point of view and a public support of Ukraine point of view. And I, you know, that's that's where Putin is always so evil and effective in a sense. I mean, of course, evil is the opposite word that, that David would use, but, you know, so we're so effective uh, at playing the long game in a, and in an incredibly cynical way. And I'd uh, recommend everyone uh, read um, Peter's um, weekly bulletin and uh, you'll have a piece too in North and South, I understand. I, I have got a piece coming up in North and South. I'm going to make that much more around what well, I've written. It will be in next month's North and South. It'll be much more around uh, David Kilcullen's views around New Zealand's place and its, its place relative to Australia. The ability, which um, Robert Patman has talked about, of New Zealand to kind of lead a coalition of, of uh, smaller nations um, and, and not necessarily be quite so beholden to the United States. So I, I hope, hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll come on, Bernard, and read it like a talking book on here, if you like. <laughs> uh, audio book. And just... Now, um, I, I want to tell you a surprise thing, Bernard. I actually have some sympathy for ScoMo. Yes. Well, this is our talking, our, our skateboarding what, What's going story. to be our sort of skateboarding dog was going to be skateboarding, skateboarding ScoMo. You know, I absolutely loved his, his comment that I was steering the ship in the middle of the tempest. When you guys, you bastards, more or less, he said, but, you know, when you were on the shore, second guessing me, I mean, it was an extraordinary period. However, the fact that even the ministers involved didn't know does seem to be extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, just the thought of it. Let's say you're, you know, you're, you're in an executive team 
and um, you can see the CEO is doing a job. And then suddenly you find out one day that he's also taking your job and he's ordering things up and blocking things without even telling you. I mean, it's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, no, I thought, I, I mean, I, I, I'm slightly joking in that it is absolutely an extraordinary thing to have done. I mean, it was a crisis time. I do think that Morrison, as much as Jacinda Ardern to some extent, uh, you know, deserves some credit for having acted. But this this weird collusion with the governor general, and of course, you know, we we some of us are old enough to remember um, Whitlam being dis dismissed by Sir John Kerr. Uh, you know, to have the governor general involved, this is not going to do a lot of good for the um, for those who want to want to keep uh, links to the Queen in, in Australia. And, and yeah. I thought it was really interesting. Um, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who still looks like he'd make a much more sensible prime minister uh, on the nationals in the Liberals than Australia. Um, uh, you know, talking about, you know, we need to know who, the, who, who who's entitled to run our country. Yeah, it has been um, such a hell of a story. The thing about Australian politics is that it's so much more entertaining than everyone else's. They're, it's wild. It's not about, yeah. It's not, and and this, this uh, series of revelations this week have really thrown the cat amongst the pigeons. Um, and uh, we should keep an eye on it because... Uh, Anthony Albanese looks like he's in an increasingly strong position. And from a New Zealand point of view, that's going to be uh, crucial come early next year when the Australians will have to come up with a pathway to residency for us. Mm. And uh, interestingly, the Australians have an even bigger labour shortage problem than we do. And uh, that that could cause some um, some real movements back and forth uh, across the Tasman. Peter, it's been uh, a wonderful uh, lovely to see you, Bernard. I'll see you in, a, in about three minutes when you come three in minutes. from from, uh, uh, from your office to my room. That's right. Open up the beer. I'll be with you in a second. <laughs> Kakite ano everybody. Thank you for, for coming onto the home.